Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Goldman Rees, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Everyone, welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Platt. Michael, thanks for joining us. I'm going to do your intro in a second, but I just really want to say how much how grateful I am for you to take some time to be here today. Preston, I'd do anything for you. You're <laughs> a fantastic friend and colleague and collaborator. And I know this is a great way to reach some really terrific people. I'm going to start off by embarrassing you a little bit. So the couple things that the listener should know right off the bat is Dr. Michael Platt is a neuroscientist, among other things, but primarily known as a neuroscientist. And you should know in the world of academics or the academy is that it's often the person, a person's life goal, if they choose to be in the academics, to be a professor or especially a full professor at an Ivy League university. And to be that professor at, say, the Wharton School or the Harvard Medical School or Stanford is a big deal. It is very rare, however, to get nominated and get selected to be faculty at more than one of those schools within a university. And Dr. Michael Platt is currently a professor of neuroscience, a professor of psychology, and a professor of marketing at the Perlman School of Medicine, which is, just so everyone knows, UPenn is the oldest medical school in the country. And so Michael is a professor there. He's a professor at UPenn School of Arts and Sciences, and he's a professor at the Wharton School, which is often named as one of the top business schools in the world. So to be named as faculty in all three is kind of a big deal. There's there's a small list of people around the world that can do that. The reason I first met Michael and we became sort of friends and colleagues is because in the world of mission-critical teams, we're often encountering, well, let me put it this way, everyone's selling to these teams all the time, every kind of widget, every kind of new gizmo. And a lot of it is, hey, we can make your brains work better. And I was constantly in these team rooms where people were like, oh, here's this cool widget you guys should buy for $50,000. And I would listen to it. And in my classes, my neuroscience classes under with Michael's colleagues, I'm like, I don't know if that's true. So I called up Michael and his partner, Zab, at the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative, And over time, they would help me both learn and understand the neuroscience, but also sort of understand what is true, what is potentially true, and what is just not true. And so I'll just pause there and say, Michael, now that you've sort of been in your position, and I'm sure you get asked this a lot about how to sort of think about those things that can help human performance from a neuroscience point of view and the amount of stuff out there that's just fantasy. And how you sort of parse these things. Yeah, well, thanks, Preston. And thanks for embarrassing me. But, you know, all of those accolades do come with three times the committee meetings. So I feel like I'm putting in the work. And I do remember when I arrived here in the fall of 2015 and uh, you called me up. We went out to have a coffee and and I thought, who is this guy and how did he find me? (laughs) And, um, And he's super intense. But this is really important stuff. And super interesting and really dovetailed with 
my passion, which, you know, I've been a neuroscientist for a long time, masquerading kind of, because I'm, I'm an anthropologist by, tr- by original training. But, you know, the idea coming here to Penn and to Wharton was to say, how, what can we learn from neuroscience, the sort of consistent real findings that you're talking about, right? What can we develop and apply in terms of technology and analytics to human beings outside the lab and outside the clinic? So how can we take all those learnings that might teach us how to help somebody who has a true deficit in, you know, it could be language processing, it could be an impulse control, you know, it could be an attention issues. How can we take that and we use that to help your average everyday person? And in and then in particular, in your case, you know, people who are asked to do extremely challenging things under, you know, unbelievably <laughs> difficult time, you know, time constraints. So that's, that's a tall order. You know, I like to think of Wharton neuroscience as sort of one-stop shopping for you to come and say, you know, for anybody really to say, you know, what's real, what's hype. And can you please make this really, I mean, the, the field of neuroscience is so complex and, you know, broad and deep, um, you know, with hundred, you know, dozen, you know, many tens of thousands of people come to our annual meeting. How can you put, turn that into something real that's bite-sized that somebody can use? And so that's what we see as our mission at Wharton Neuroscience is to be able to do that. And, you know, the good news is, is that over the last 20 years, neuroscience has really, you know, through the advent of modern brain imaging and, and new analytics and, and now wearable technology, I think we've we do have a really good sketch of like, what are the circuits in our brain that support decision-making? What are the circuits that support focus? What helps kick our brains out of ruts? You know, what promotes resilience? And we're still learning about these things. What allows people to work together seamlessly? You know, what is, what is team chemistry, which I think we're going to talk about. And we actually kind of understand those things, right? And, and we understand how they work in the average brain. And then we understand a lot about what counts accounts for the diversity between brains and that that diversity, I think we're really coming to appreciate not only in and of itself for people as individuals, but in the ways that diversity can help us to solve extraordinary problems, yeah. right? By bringing people together who have very different talents and very different perspectives. And it's it's a great example, right? And we're gonna we're gonna talk about this concept of neurodiversity, the idea of cognitive diversity or the way that we think differently and where that comes from, and some proxies around that. But one of the things I want to point out is, and just to amplify what you were just saying, your book, for example, The Leader's Brain, that was published relatively recently, one mm-hmm. of the things that makes it so exceptional is there is a lot of books out on, on neuroscience, and I try to read some of them. And some of them are actually pretty tough to read if you don't have a background in neuroscience. And what makes your book so exceptional is that a normal person can read it and go, oh, I get why this matters. And also for me, what matters about it is that the Mission Critical Team Institute is an applied research institute. We're trying to solve problems on Monday. And so there are times where I will encounter a phenomenon where I'm looking at it and it's I'm being told one thing, but I'm watching another thing and I can't square the two. Mm. And so, and I'll take us back to about eight months ago. I had just come from spending two days with Penn's 
orthopedic trauma unit, observing all of their residents. And we were looking at this question of how to develop residents to become you know, surgeons, because nationally, residents are experiencing high attrition. We're seeing a shortage of them. They're experiencing high levels of depression, right? And, and the question is, are we doing it right? Could we be doing it better? Everybody's asking this question, right? And Penn sort of leads the, the front on this in many ways. And one of the residents said to me, I said, oh, how's it going? Like, what would you, what would you do better? What would you do different? He goes, I like it. I just wish they would yell at me less. <laughs> and and I, I felt myself nodding. Like that does seem pretty reasonable, right? Like to be in surgery and have someone screaming at you seems a, like a pretty reasonable request. And so as I'm walking away from this conversation, I of course do the thing, which I do, which is to say, well, let's just test that. Has there ever been a time in my life where someone screamed at me and it actually helped my performance? And I had to give a very reluctant yes to that, saying, yeah, there actually have been a couple of times where, like, for example, I've had a bad habit and somebody jacked me up and it was that emotional stimulus that helped me sort of check myself, mark that moment and help my hands do the thing my brain was trying to get them to do. And and I brought this up to you because you're often the person I will check in with just to go, hey, is there is there any way that I can explain this outside of this phenomenon that I, and I see this, what I, I think of as a paradox, but maybe it's not, maybe I'm just not thinking about it right. And that's when you introduced me to this concept of the marble. And I wanted to see if you would just walk us through that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and I, I want to point out that it's not my original idea, although I think I applied it in this domain um, for the first time. So I didn't come up with this metaphor of a marble for development, but I, I think it, it's new to apply it in this way. So, and I came across this metaphor when I was a student and it was a metaphor for kind of thinking about the evolutionary and developmental process for any animal, any organism. And it's sort of coming through life, you know, it's born and it's coming through life. And think of it like a marble rolling down a hill and what it ends up like as an adult, let's say, is going to be shaped by kind of where this canal it's in is sort of meandering across the landscape and how shallow and wide it is versus how narrow it is, right? And so that's how, how like, you know, think about identical twins or not, so you know, like with the same DNA and maybe separated at birth, they're going to exhibit some differences that depend on, you know, having grown up in different houses, but, you know, some similarities. So that's sort of the the, the sort of, shallowness versus depth of the of this canal. So now think about in your in the case that we're talking about here, and maybe with respect to these residents, you're or anybody really who gets into a routine. So think about that canal. You're a marble rolling down this hill. And the more you stay in one track, like the more you that canal gets deeper and the walls get, you know, get higher. So you know it is it's a what do you call that in, in snowboarding? It's a half pipe. You know, you're basically stuck in this half pipe. Even if you go back up, you're going to come back down. And so sometimes, and this goes back to that evolutionary scenario, sometimes to get out of that, you know, you need an extreme perturbation, like somebody, an earthquake that shakes the whole, you know, foundation of the hill that you're rolling down. And then you pop out of that one canal and into another one, right? And I think that that's pretty apt for what happens as we get very solidified into routine, right? Into habits and habits are a good thing because they take off the cognitive load, allow you to operate more efficiently, but they, you can get stuck, right? And uh, you can't see that there are other ways of doing things. And so 
maybe getting yelled at, you know, is sort of like that earthquake, maybe some kind of emotional upheaval. The If we ended up talking about brain circuitry, the parts of the brain that are kind of involved in thinking outside the box and exploring new opportunities, that's what gets us out of that canal. They're actually sensitive to things like uncertainty and volatility and lots of people being around. So those are the kinds of things that can kind of push you out of that canal. You know, that marble can get to somewhere it needs to be, but otherwise would have almost no likelihood of getting there. Yeah. So one of the things that I want to just do a caveat, because we're, we've released this paper now, sort of looking at some of the assumptions we're making about developing future members of a mission critical teams. And we know even before we released it, that it's going to be considered pretty controversial because what we're saying is, Hey, those residents that are getting yelled at, sometimes it's actually appropriate and people were going to lose their minds. So just a, a, a couple of caveats here. I am not covering for idiots, right? If if you're just screaming at somebody because you're frustrated, that's unprofessional and childish. You should not do that, right? If you're screaming at people because you're frustrated rather than you want to support them, that's unprofessional. However, if you're watching someone who's struggling and you have to balance the development of, say, a resident in this case, and the ethical needs of the patient so they're not injured, Mm -hmm. then you've got to do something very quickly to intervene on their learning because they're the ones holding the scalpel in such a way that will promote both their learning and the patient's health. And that may require an emotional stimulus. And that emotional stimulus can be anything from, man, Michael, I'm so disappointed in you, to, (laughs) you know, like to, hey, what are you doing? But the key is, is that you have to remember that after that's over, if you don't hate, help them make meaning of that emotion, then that could be maleducated, meaning that they could, instead of saying, oh, that was really helpful that Preston yelled at me, they just say, Preston's a jerk. And that mm. doesn't actually support any growth of anything. And which leads me to a couple of things, and, and you can pick among these. One is, is what you've written about in terms of the social brain, and also this idea that Kahneman is known for, which is the thinking fast and thinking slow, right? And that it's it, that we make decisions or we navigate the world both cognitively or intellectually and emotively or emotionally, and that they're intertwined. And one might suggest that if they're intertwined from a thinking and decision-making point of view, they're probably intertwined from a learning point of view. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to sort of jump into so for you to check my math there and also yeah. just sort of get any thoughts you might have? Yeah, no, I, those are both super important questions. I mean, my sense, just to kind of follow up on the, the yelling at the resident, having been essentially that resident in surgery in early in my career and having gotten yelled at many times, what's important is, as you said, that you take it as a learning experience. So ideally, there would be follow-up with the instructor, the cadre, who would then say, hey, here's why I yelled at you. And here's what I hope that you take from this, right? So to put a, a sort of compassionate, goal-oriented human being on the other side of that. So I yeah. think that that's critical. With regard to emotions and cognition, yes, they are they are inextricably intertwined. I mean, we love to, you know, when neuroscientists and, and the lay public alike love to focus on like, well, here's the part of the brain for fear, and here's the part of the brain for joy and here's the part of the brain for thinking and you know that's hopelessly simplified because all of these bits and pieces are connected to each other 
And you see that even in the kind of earliest stages of sensory processing, like where visual information is reassembled into images from the pixels that come in from your eyes, that that's sensitive to emotional factors. So like whether what you're seeing is a snake or a bag of money, and depending on whether you're, you know, you're rich or you're poor, and you've had bad experiences with snakes in the past, that shows up all the way practic, not quite at your retina, but like pretty, pretty early on in sensory processing. So to think that it's not there, to imagine it's not there at every stage of subsequent processing leading to decision-making and ultimately an output is just an error. It's there. Emotions evolved for a very good reason, right? Which is that they support decision-making by providing a prioritization, by providing emotional tone for identifying threats and opportunities. And that helps to kind of put a finger on the scale. Like let's say there's two options you can, you know, like approach or retreat and emotions help to kind of tip the balance a little bit. So you don't get stuck doing nothing because, you know, ultimately decisions take time. It's a a process that unfolds over time. But if two options are pretty similar in terms of the evidence supporting them, it would be easy to just kind of be like Hamlet and never do anything. But that, that sort of emotional color, I've had experience with this in the past, or I really need to, you know, get to work on time, whatever those priorities might be, that's, they come through emotions and support the learning and decision-making process. Now, what's interesting, what we're learning in neuroscience, like in the last five or 10 years, is that there are many domains in which we make decisions currently, like in weird environments, Western, educated, industrialized, I can't remember the R, and democratic, rich and democratic environments, like basically where we live, that are not the environments our brains spent millions of years evolving in. And so we do stupid things, things that, you know, Danny Kahn and others have made a career out of kind of uh, trying to explain these so-called irrationalities. And a lot of those irrationalities just arise from constraints on the way our brains were built and designed to be efficient. And um, a lot of the time, what you see is that we do stupid things because we're constantly learning and constantly updating with that sort of emotional tone. And some of that emotional tone is like a volume knob that turns up all the information you're getting, signal or noise. And one way to kind of at least minimize that is, is like through regulation, through deep breathing, through saying, you know, okay, I do I do this every day for a living. Sometimes things go good. Sometimes they go bad. It's what counts is in the long run that, you know, things that, that we come out on the winning side rather than the losing side. So I, I think that, you know, so it's, this is both saying that emotions are deeply involved for a very good reason, right? Our brains are kind of built to do this in a very different kind of environment that we're in right now. And if you want to kind of turn down the volume a little bit on uh, to so you don't make mistakes you know one way you can do that is through regulation that was a long-winded answer but, no I, uh, I actually really appreciate it because, no it, it uh it was actually really helpful for me and it segues perfectly into some other questions i have for you which is one of the things that we're noticing over the last 20 years is because the teams have had such extraordinary access to leading thinkers in human performance mm-hmm. that they are with good intent trying to download as much of this information to young operators, brand new folks like nurses, young doctors, young operators as quickly as possible, thinking that if they do a PowerPoint on breathing, then the students themselves will be able to figure out when to apply it. Yeah. The problem is, is that the first time that something gets blown up or there's a 300 pound man screaming at you, 
And you're, you're the intellectual is like, oh, this is the part where breathing would help. It's <laughs> you have nothing to connect it to. And so we're finding that when it comes to developing that really important emotional regulation, we're finding that we need to sequence experience first and then teach the theory to apply it to the lived experience that we can't teach the theory in the absence of the lived experience because there's nowhere to anchor it. Does that right. seem that seem right? That totally makes sense to me. You just won't know how to apply what what part of the, the that whole experience do you even begin if you haven't had the experience. It's just all theoretical. Yeah, we don't, it turns out we don't, you know, in general, people don't learn so great just from didactic information. Right. So we, we learn we learn much better through through participation, through action. Um, that's what our brains are really designed to do. It's not to say we can't otherwise, but it's you're you're engaging your body, you're engaging every aspect of the the system that is you in a way that's not true if you're sort of sitting in an armchair reading from a textbook. So this actually brings us to the next important point, which is, you know, in your book, The Leader's Brain, you talk about the social brain, right? And one of the things I will point out to people is there is a reason other than crowd control why we learn in classrooms, what COVID taught us about being together in a learning environment and about how much the dialogue, the exchange of ideas creates something that's sort of unique, that's synergistic in a way that sitting by ourselves reading a book can't get to. And I wanted you to sort of say that as a preamble to, to, to get you to sort of think about the social brain. Yeah. So the social, you know, this is my, like my favorite topic because it's, it's something we're actively working on in the laboratory. But each and every one of us has what we would call a social brain network in our heads. You know, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, it's there. This evolved, you know, long time ago in our primate ancestors and is a key feature of the human adaptive toolkit. It's why we can do things that other animals cannot because we can come together in groups, we can cooperate, we can learn from each other. We don't have to develop all the expertise on our own, right? And that is something that really hasn't been seen on the planet since. So that's why we've been so successful at <laughs> taking over the planet, I mean, for, for better or for worse right now. And that kind of a, a part of the, the sort of um, contract with our social brain network is that because we depend on other people to help complete the jigsaw puzzle that is humanity, it means that we, we actually really do need them. So the data is becoming really, really clear. And this is something we've been working on a lot is that social support is critical for resilience. And, and that can be, you know, having lots of friends or deeper friendships. And actually it's amazing because the, the more friends you have, the bigger your social brain network and the bigger your social brain network, the, the more you have to work with, the better you're going to be at, at that job. And some of that depends on what you got from your parents, but most of it depends on what you did with it, your experiences and how much you actually exercise your social brain. So it's like a muscle. And the more you use it, the bigger it grows. And the bigger it grows, the better it does its job. The better you're going to be able to navigate any kind of complex social situation and, and the better you will be at recruiting social support. So we now know that people who have more social support live longer, healthier, happier lives. They make more money too because they are more persuasive. They're better at building trust with other people. They're better at teamwork. They're better at, at creating cultures that enable teams to work together. So, I mean, what an amazing capability, what an amazing device we have in our heads. 
And now when you, you brought up COVID, I mean, you think about like what that did to people, right? With what isolation did to people, like what cutting off all of those social connections. It was, it, you know, first of all, anxiety, depression, suicide, drug use, they all went through the roof. And it seems like pretty clear it was a direct consequence of, you know, shutting down, closing people off from each other. But it also made it really clear how much we need each other and how much, like, as you said, learning with other people around, learning in a social environment, it's just different from, you know, learning on your own. And we're still piecing together what those differences are, but we definitely are in a different state. Mm -hmm. Um, Our brains are in a different state than when we're alone. So one of the things that I want to follow up on this is one of the things we've discovered over the last couple of years is there's been a growing moment movement, certainly in special operations, where folks that grew up historically on heterogeneous teams where they're working with the same eight people for years at a time, and their, their social network is really restricted to their family and those eight people due to the immersive nature of their world. Yeah. Suddenly, over the last few years, we're now seeing that these people are being split up in ones and twos and set over to create ad hoc team, what we're calling tactical swarms, where teamwork is less important than the action of teaming, which is to develop teams, which is to build, to rapidly have the capacity and capability to rapidly build teams of strangers, much like what happens in medical trauma teams, resuscitation teams, excuse me, where swarms of people who don't really know each other have to come together urgently to solve a complex task. And when I think about your work in sort of the social brain, I think about this problem because what we've seen is some of these folks that have grown up on heterogeneous teams really struggle to initially learn how to be good at teaming, but they can learn. Just as you said, it's a muscle and it grows over time. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting observation and it resonates with what we see in business top now too with agile teams. So, you know, we're People come together temporarily. They have to to achieve some goal. They have to you know, take some project execution, and then they disband, and then they go somewhere else. And that's a pretty novel thing in human history, too, yep. because you know you think about the fact that human beings, for most of our evolutionary career, lived in small bands of somewhere between a dozen and you know four or five dozen people. Mm-hmm. So you knew everybody face to face, and you would have known them over your lifetime, and you would have worked with them day in and day out. And you would have apprenticed under them. And, and, you know, in some ways, that's what you're kind of talking about is these, you know, these heterogeneous teams, but they were together for a long time. And now you've got to find a way to disengage, sort of disconnect, reconnect serially and do that quickly and deeply. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think this is one of the most fascinating and, and um, challenging facets of kind of current, you know, society, current ways of doing things. And so that's actually where a lot of our work is aimed at saying, well, because we have some biomarkers or biological markers of what good team chemistry looks like, you know, aside from what people say, which can be biased and incomplete, we can, that allows us to evaluate, to benchmark different ways of like, how do we get dialed in with you really fast? Yep. And, you know, I'd love to do more work with you on that too, because yeah. I, there's so many opportunities and it could have so much, can create so much good in the Absolutely. world. I think one of the things that's really interesting about COVID as well is going back to what you were just saying. One of the things that I noticed at the Wharton School is that 
you know, we get students from all over the world. We're not unique like this, but many universities. Yeah. And the, the role, actually, of a college or a university is often taking society's somewhat isolated individuals, young people who maybe grew up in a very strict, say, patriarchy, right, where where the, the father was in charge, and maybe you're the first female to leave the family. And this happens at Wharton, it happens at Harvard, it happens at universities where, you know, we're seeing, we're still seeing first generation women who yeah. are leaving the home for the first time. And I mean, the family compound and coming to a very sophisticated learning environment with a very diverse group of people and being told, hey, yeah, audience participation, classroom participation is 50% of your, your role, yeah. right? So <laughs> figure it out, right? And you're going from zero to 200 miles an hour without a lot of understanding about what the rules are. But I think it's really useful because as difficult as it is, that their capacity, their learned capacity to do that at that age will serve them for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and important point, you're catching them young. So yeah. it, I mean, we our brains are flexible and plastic throughout life, but it's definitely easier to do these things when you're young and you really consider the fact that your brain is really adolescent until you're 25. It doesn't stop, quote unquote, maturing. <laughs> My case maybe hasn't yet, but um, but it, you know that that means that there's a lot of lability there. I think the challenge you point out is really profound. That you know, data from our our good friend and colleague Talia Wheatley up at Dartmouth, where she she basically scans the brains of every single MBA candidate who arrives on campus before they start school, before they've met anybody, and has looked at these biomarkers of closeness. And you can actually predict who's going to become friends and who's not just from these like scans before they ever met anybody. Yeah. What's really interesting is that individuals who come from more diverse, kind of cosmopolitan locations. And their their brains are more primed yep. to connect with people more easily, right? And so, if you've grown up in somewhere rural, perhaps somewhat isolated, it makes sense, right? Institutive, but the data is now, I think, pretty definitive. It's just a lot harder, yep. right? It's a lot harder. It's harder to kind of, you know, in in some sense, for the the marble to get out of that deep canal and to be able to have a lot of different endpoints. Yep. So here's, I'm going to flip it a little bit because I want to talk just briefly about the default mode network and, and sort of explain what that is, but I'll give you the context in which I want to talk to you about it. So what we're seeing right now at a lot of the front end of the selection and assessment pipelines is we've known for a long time that if you take something like BUDS or any boot camp, typically when people drop on request or quit, it's not during times where it's busy or adversity or stressful or they're getting beat on. It's times where they're quiet, where they're sitting by themselves without being able to talk to anyone and they're alone in their thoughts. And, and this is not a criticism, what I'm about to say. We have a generation that's grown up that's always had access to electronic stimulus, whether it be audio or video or computer or tablet, where they've never had to sit in the back of the car on the family road trip and just stare out the window and entertain themselves. Yeah. So what's happening is, and we're seeing this not just in a selection assessment, but we're seeing this where an elite athlete maybe gets injured and is suddenly in a hospital bed by themselves without stimulus, sort of going, oh my God, my life's just changed. What am I going to do? Or a veteran's been blown up in a hospital bed, what am I going to do? And so what we're finding and what we're recommending is that some of these teams and universities need to go back in time and intentionally create some white space that force some reflection. And part of this, I think, and this is where I'm sort of turn over to you, 
is because I've come to believe that the default mode network, that sort of supercomputer in our brain is also like a little bit of a muscle. And if we don't exercise it a little bit, it might atrophy in ways that that will not support us optimally in those moments where we are alone inside of our own heads. So I want to say that out loud so that you can either correct me or, or whatever. Well, no, I, I think that I think a lot of what you said is really interesting and, and resonates. It does seem to be the case that people who are digital natives, people who've grown up, and even uh, people who have been adults for a long time, through this easy access to multiple channels of stimulation, it I think has it means we're never bored, right? And when you're never bored, you're never spinning it, you never mind's never wandering, you're never spinning out new scenarios. So this default network mode network that you talk about, and we we're some of the pioneers in studying it. It comes online when you are not focused on something, some stimulus, some routine, right? Something that you know keeps you away from from boredom. It's an ancient piece of equipment on the one hand, but it's really elaborated in humans. I mean, and it is engaged not just when our minds wander, but when we project ourselves into the future, all the different possible scenarios when we project ourselves into the past so it's it's important for kind of time travel it is there to support flexibility and thinking outside the box and creativity yeah i mean i think that that i'm very concerned that we are in multiple ways creating a generations you know that will be potentially impaired in their ability to do that at precisely the wrong moment in history when we need them you know, the most yep. reserves of creativity and forward thinking, you know, to solve these big challenges that are confronting society. I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward to, that in most cases, the, the brain is, is like a muscle. So whatever you're exercising a lot gets amplified and, and takes up more space in your brain and whatever you're not, you know, using a lot kind of atrophies. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like, the part of the brain that we use to read, which is not there by a not put there by evolution, because we only you know created reading and writing a few thousand years ago, but it takes the space that you would normally use to process faces. Hmm. So it's like people who are literate actually seem to be better at like recognizing faces than people who are highly, highly illiterate. So that's just sort of one, one example that we never even kind of consider. Not to say one is better than the other, but it is a, it's a trade-off. If you're, if you're only working, you know, back and buys, then you're not going to get your uh, delts and tries in shape. So that just to say this sort of uh, to connect a couple of different things here is that, you know, for those listening who may not be sure what we're talking about, the, the way it's been described to me is the default mode network is the thing where you're struggling with a problem. You're getting nowhere. All of a sudden, the next morning you wake up and take a shower and the solution pops into your head. And it's because the sort of supercomputer in the back of your brain that needs to be untasked in order for it to work got activated activated might not be the right term, but it got engaged and suddenly could solve your problem by bringing together a lot of different things. Is that a, is that a fair description? I think it's a, it's a very apt decision. Absolutely. Yeah. And you see, I mean, when we talked about neurodiversity, we see that people who are really creative, but also people who are on the sort of attention deficit hyperactivity end of the spectrum, they have kind of hyperactivity in this default mode network, which accounts for why they're you know, a bit different and a bit talented in that direction, but lack, you know, can often lack focus and vice versa. Yep. 
There's been some interesting stuff which you've sent to me, which is this notion of, and we've seen this in in mission critical teams a lot because often we will see people that will seek out mission critical teams. And this is what I was talking to Art Finch about in our last team cast, which are folks who have what we call now really wide neurodiversity, meaning that they might have a different learning profile. Maybe they're autistic, maybe they're dyslexic, maybe they have ADHD. But these folks, their superpower might be that they're really creative, they're really nonlinear thinkers, and that we don't want to make the mistake of school because school's not really built to manage a lot of those folks from a behavioral point of view. But as a society, we don't want to actually weed that out. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I preach this all the time, caveat, I'm not a clinician, but here in the U.S., public school systems are mostly designed for behavioral control. I mean, you know, you pack 30-some young people into a classroom, that's pretty challenging to manage. And so people who are by inclination, a little bit, you know, free thinkers, more like to, you know, feel the urge to get up and move around, that's going to be problematic, you know. And so it's interesting to have charted the over the last 20 years, the rise in diagnoses of attention deficit problems and the concomitant prescribing of stimulants, which turn up the focus in your brain, but turn down the ability to explore and to be creative. And we have data, for example, showing that actually in in certain kind of foraging situations where you're sort of you know searching for resources, people who have ADHD profiles actually do much better than than people who don't, yeah. which is interesting. And there's some there's a lot of other interesting data out there on it. So I, I'm concerned about squashing that through the combined forces of public school education and basically prescribing drugs to control yes. this problem, some of these differences in behavior. And it's it's interesting because some of the mechanisms, so what we will often say, just going back, is what we were just talking about, which is, I will say to people, hey, look, at two o'clock, which is sort of the low part of your circadian rhythm, get out of your chair, go outside, take a walk, be bored. The problem is, is the downside of the social brain is that you've got all these voices in your head saying, man, if I do that, people will think I'm being lazy or a slacker, or they might be whispering that I'm not doing my work. And so there's this societal need to get people moving and thoughtful and reflective. And there's all this pressure to stay at your desk and do your work. And I, and I'm often at a loss to how to help people bridge that, that sort of tension. Yeah, I mean, I, I I coach business leaders on this all the time to not only and I give you know I give them the evidence they usually will buy it, but to make space for themselves to move, to step away, to step uh, disengage from routine, but also to provide that space for the people you know for their employees, for their teams. They need they need that. They need and you know it's going to be a different cadence for each person, and depending on their job. But you know, just sitting in one place all day long is not healthy for anybody for a whole variety of reasons. Yeah. So going into our last question before we start to close this down is many people on listening will have heard of the concept of flow and they'll often have their teams trying to get to a place of flow where everybody's moving in sequence and time and space seems to slow. But some of your research on synchronicity is showing from a from a neuroscience point of view that there are some things that we can do as precursors or ramps into or pathways into flow that we can both think about study and structure to get us closer to being able to construct those moments. Is that a, is that a fair description? 
Well, I would say first off that we don't really know exactly what flow is in okay. the brain. And that's largely because most, you know, let's be frank. I mean, most neuroscience studies are done to try to understand what's going wrong in, in you know, individuals' brains who have some kind of, of brain health concern. Until recently, we have lacked the technology to also measure brain activity in people doing things actively, right? So, which is typically when we we think of flow states occurring, you're in the moment, you're doing something that you enjoy, that you love, um, is very active. And so that has been a, a challenge too. That said, I mean, we do, one of the, the things that we've been really interested in is this notion of kind of group flow. Yeah. Like when you're with other people and you're doing something you know, hopefully constructive or sometimes just fun, you know, and you have this feeling this, uh, and it's hard to explain, but you have this feeling of like something bigger than yourself and you're caught up in something and, you know, you don't notice time passing. And we think it is precisely this notion of, of synchrony, physiological synchrony that when our, when we have good chemistry with someone, when we are working together, our brains and our bodies begin to synchronize their physiological activity. And that's associated with all this good stuff like increased trust and collaboration and teamwork and you name it. But it's also associated, we, we did this study with rowers in the Penn rowing team. It's also associated with this sense of group flow, which in rowing they call swing. It's kind of this, like, even though you're all pulling on your own oar, the feeling is you're pulling on one big oar together and you feel it really linked up. And I think that's really kind of fascinating because, you know, it, it capitalizes on a couple of things, which is we're wired to be social, right? And when we do things as a group, especially if we do them, you know, in the case of rowers, they're literally synchronizing their movements. And when you synchronize your movements really, really well in the presence of, you know, with other people, this leads to this feeling of, of um, you know, that I think is almost supernatural, right? Yeah. What what Emil Durkheim, the the father of sociology, called collective effervescence, which is a term that I just love. This sort of you just you know you just feel bubbly and heady, you know. <laughs> That's where we all want to be. I think most of the time, once you've had that experience, yeah. And kind of how do you get back there? That's the real challenge. It's you know it's really interesting because this brings us back to almost the beginning of what we were talking about. Because after you know, watching hundreds, maybe thousands of teams over the last 30 years in very difficult environments. What you what what I've noticed over and over again, there's certain thematic similarities. And one of them is a high functioning team that's operating really well gets quiet. Mm. So it's it's one of the things that happens is little by little they stop verbally communicating unless it's required. But everybody kind of understands and the body language and everyone kind of knows where everybody is. So it's so interesting because in an outside of a learning environment, if I walk in and see a leader screaming, I'm like, man, have you missed the point? Like, man, do you not understand the context that you're in, right? Because this is antithetical to what right likes, looks and feels like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm having only experienced that a few times, but yeah, it, yeah that's palpable. Yeah. Absolutely. So as we as we start to close this up, and I'm eternally grateful to you being here because I know how busy you are. If you think about our audience and you think about the work they're doing in medicine or in tech law enforcement or fire, NASA, as a neuroscientist, as you as you look out across these really urgent, complex, 
social team-based environments uh, with high consequence and you were and you were to make a couple of just general recommendations nothing like critical but for for people to sort of look after themselves and look after each other what are some of the things you might say from a neuroscience point of view that's a great question again you're bringing me one of the most challenging questions that there is with big consequences but you know it kind of like if you're Thinking about brain brain hacks, you know, how can I keep my brain healthy and alive and keep my the brains of my teammates healthy and alive? I mean, the first thing you you should do is engage in physical exercise. So we know that physical exercise is the the one key thing you can do to stave off cognitive decline. It it reduces inflammation. It it basically slows down the aging process in your brain. And so, you know, you, we talked about that default mode network. It's it's really vulnerable. For example, and one of the first networks to kind of fall apart in Alzheimer's. Yeah, physical exercise is going to help protect your brain against that. Similarly, social exercise. So we we talked about how important it is for teaming, but just in terms of brain health. It's one of the key factors that will keep your brain again alive and healthy and high functioning, you know, and I and I think your body as well. So those are two two really important things. I think making space for yourself and making space for your team. So recognizing the fact that you can't go 24-7, that stepping away is really vital, right? To to especially to preserve those parts of the brain that are really necessary for for flexibility and creativity in, in novel environments. So I think those are kind of the three key things yeah. that, you know, and I guess then, I guess you, you asked me to, to think about the people, you know, on your teams. Well, that also means, you know, making space and, and, uh, you know, uh, attending to them too, which, which requires being present and listening. And we know that that is beneficial, that uh, that actually increases the perception that you're a leader is actually, if you are a listener, you listen to other people. And if you are forthcoming and honest, if you're true to yourself about, you know, what you're feeling, your own sharing your own emotions, not in an overbearing way, but, you know, it, it increases your, your humanity. And I think that levels the playing field. I mean, it's one thing that actually to kind of get back to this social brain network is that one of the biggest vulnerabilities to of the social brain network is to status and hierarchy which is like so so challenging for a lot of these mission critical teams where it's built into the system but what we now know is that like the higher up you are the higher up you think you are the less active your social brain network is so kind of flattening that hierarchy and one way to do that is to be to be a human being. So it's interesting because there's a couple of things you make me think about, which is if you think about generals and admirals and CEOs, right? The thing that they lose is white space and also their social network. And the thing we need them to have the most of is probably those two things. Right. So we're going to have to figure out a way to help our leaders create both white space and also be able to socialize in an environment where there's a lot of people that are after their time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so yeah, how do you build that into the job description? And I think it's a huge challenge, but that's where, you know, that's where building, creating the right kind of team and ecosystem yeah. is really critical. 
And just as a reminder to the audience, I know that we have a high percentage of introverts listening to us and you're nodding along to, uh, to Michael and saying, yeah, people should go out and be more social, not people, you, you should go out social and not just with your two buddies, but like with neighbors, for example, who you have nothing in common with, but learn how to have small talk with. Yeah. I mean, I think it is the, the, uh, analogy to the gym is a good one, right? Which is that if you've got particular areas of your, you know, fitness that are not so good, you don't ignore them. You try to, you know, if you're, you try to work on them, right. If you, your lower back is weak, you don't just give up on it. You try to do some exercises to strengthen it. And we know that whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, you get the same benefits from, from working on your, on your social network. Yeah. Well, sir, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're you're super busy, and I'll close this out. But before I do, any last comments that you want to make? I think I covered it all, and you know, I just want everybody. You know, if you are interested in more, you can follow me on social media. I'm pretty pretty out there. So if you want to, a steady diet of this mashup of neuroscience and teaming and business and performance and athletics. You know, follow me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and that's a good good way to keep up to date. We'll put both of those in the show notes, everyone, along with a link to his book, the, the Leader's Brain, and the various places that you can see Dr. Michael Platt's research. I want to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you, sir, for being with us, and um, see everybody next time. Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at Janice at missioncti.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.